social media creates the ability to put out propaganda and even to do psychological operations where, you know, I mean, look at this QAnon phenomenon. I think it started as a joke and got co-opted by people who wanted to turn it into an operation because you can manipulate people extremely easily once you find something that they're latched into. Um, we keep finding out the different podcasters and so on are state assets. And it's just like, there's some funny stuff going on in the internet. It's like, we used to say, don't believe everything you see on TV. And it's like, I don't know what fraction of stuff you should believe that you see on the internet, but it's less. Hi, everyone. Before we start, I want to take a minute to talk about my next book. You may have heard about the story of GameStop in January or February and thought it was all over. You're sadly mistaken. Unfolding Online has been a clash between the corrupt practices of Wall Street and the hive mind of the internet. It's a hot, raging information war pitting retail investors against financial giants swimming in corruption and fraud. The trailer is at the end of this podcast, but if you want to help crowdfund the book or just find out more, you can sign up to my mailing list to get access to a preview of chapter one or go to whenmoon.com to read more about the book. The first 200 people to pre-order the book will get a free pack of To The Moon crayons with their book. I just want to make a quick mention of our sponsors. Namecheap are one of the cheapest places on the internet to get a domain name for your next website. I've used Namecheap for all the sites I've ever purchased and I've found it really easy to use. Spreaker are a rapidly growing platform for podcast recording, publishing, and monetization with pricing plans as low as $7 per month. A cheap way to host your podcast and start earning from your back catalog of shows. Finally, ExpressVPN is the internet's most trusted VPN. Protect your privacy and watch and view content that is location locked you could even try watching Netflix from a different country. And right now, they're offering 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Please use the links in the description below if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by James A. Lindsay, uh, American mathematician, author and cultural critic, and co-author of the books, How to Have Impossible Conversations and Cynical Theories. James, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. It's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic to, to have you here. Um, so uh, I'm not going to waste any time. We'll just go straight, straight into it. So uh, do you think that we have forgotten the, the values of, of, of liberalism and, and the values that the, the Western or developed world were founded on um, as far as we can say that they are well um forgotten is a bit far i think i think that people are a little dim on them and on their importance i've i've commented in the past that uh you know in in 1989 so that's now been what 32 years ago 1989 uh the berlin wall came down we had all of these kind of big ends to kind of the soviet and eastern bloc regimes and uh, francis fukuyama in the same year published a book called The End of History. And uh, it's an ominous title ominous for people title. who know where he'd be coming from with that. But his claim was that liberalism had basically succeeded and would would spread throughout the globe, you know, slowly and would become the, the reigning paradigm. And when you find yourself in a situation like that, it's easy to start to take for granted that this is just how things are. And 
I know that I'm not talking to necessarily a very American audience here, but one of our great early um, founders said very clearly, a republic, if you can keep it. And so liberalism, as I've put it, is, and I know this is a little bit scientific sounding, but is, is what I refer to as an unstable equilibrium for a society. You have to keep working. An unstable equilibrium is like when you balance a bat on your hand. You have to keep moving. You have to keep the base underneath it or else it'll tip over. Um, it's not something that just naturally stays. And so right now I feel like we're in the, the phase where the bat's beginning to tip, but people haven't completely lost track of liberal values. They still intuit liberal values. I still get attacked on social media pretty routinely for any of my deviations from what they perceive to be liberal values. So I know that people still still have an intuition to them, but they don't have an articulation of them. They don't have a defense of them. They don't know what it's supposed to do. And so we are in danger of watching it slip because um, for the first time, maybe since those 30 years, we're facing a, a dramatic illiberal pushback uh, on or push on our society that that people are not as prepared to resist as they might have been 30 years ago or 60 years ago. Mm. I mean, I, I really like that that uh, term you've used there, unstable equilibrium. And uh, the audience is about 50-50 um, US, UK. So you, you probably, you've got about 50% uh, of your uh, fellow countrymen um, and women listening. Uh, so uh, one of the values specifically that we seem to have um, maybe not forgotten, as you've said, is perhaps a, a strong, a strong way to put it. But um, we we haven't quite we've we've maybe lost the articulation of you as you've put it of as to why it's so crucial is is freedom of speech and and something I I frequently bring up um, to people who who want to um, censor people on social media for for whatever reasons um, if they believe that that's the the right thing to do or not. Um, the the idea, uh, at least from my point of view, is that you look at um, your founding fathers and like the, these guys were clearly not idiots. They've managed to put the, they managed to put together a, a pretty solid system to have lasted this long and created the most prosperous country that ever existed. Um, the first amendment, not like the sixth, not the tenth, not even the second, was freedom of speech. Um, why in your mind is that such an, why do you think that was number one? And why do you think we've lost, um, in a way, or maybe you disagree, but the, the, the reasons for that being so important to uh, a free society? Well, I'm not a historian, so this is going to be a little bit, um, hopefully, hopefully it'll be more accurate than, than not. But, you know, w w when you want to look at why would they have put the freedom of speech first, you want to look at the context in which they were, were acting. And, you know, they had set up the colonies and the crown was pretty um, strict about how they wanted things. They were constantly writing about the tyranny of the time. But in particular, the people who were, were there to set up the colonies, because a lot of people say the First Amendment is about freedom of speech, but that's only half of the story. It's also about freedom of belief. So the people who set up the colonies were primarily people who had been religiously persecuted in Europe. Um, many of them were Calvinists, as a matter of fact, who the Europeans were not terribly fond of and, you know, famously Puritans and things like this. And more or less, they got kicked out and sent over to North America. And so the concept of freedom of belief, which requires the freedom to profess 
your belief and the, the, the freedom to be able to speak back against the government authority as it was the crown. Those were two ideas that were extremely strong in the minds of the founding fathers of the United States. And so freedom of speech, they realized, would be absolutely necessary to the establishment and maintenance of a free country where people are allowed to believe and worship as they will, where people are allowed to avoid a state religion, where people are allowed to avoid other forms of state-compelled speech or state restriction of speech. And to be able to criticize the government was something, obviously, that you know, if we look at things like the Stamp Act and the rebellion around that, et cetera, um, the ability to criticize the government for redress of grievances was something that was extremely important to the colonial mindset as they were trying to deal with the crown, which saw, you know, these as basically economic colonies that they could just get rich off of. And so these were very important issues. And it turns out that when you have these kind of very intelligent, thoughtful people thinking through this, looking at those issues, they realize a lot of important things. You know, they're dealing with the issue of slavery. You know, Pennsylvania had already uh, or was already getting rid of slavery by like 1780, for example. But then you have the other states, some of the southern states, for example, that were going to go to war 70 something years later to try to preserve it. Um, you have this very kind of complicated milieu. And to make it work, there had to be the ability to be able to speak up. There had to be the ability to um to to say, you know, if there are people who are oppressed by our system, that they have to be able to speak into our system or else their oppression is going to be maintained. That that kind of mentality, which is the, the, the true path out of oppression, was core to their mindset. So free speech is an extremely important issue. Now, you, you know, you've brought up free speech as a core value. The First Amendment, as you pointed out, I've made the same point many times. They didn't put it second, third or 26th or anything. It's number one right there. You're not going to restrict our ability to believe and you're not going to restrict our ability to speak. And you're not going to restrict our ability to gather and petition the government for redress of grievances. Um, the government is going to have to be responsible to the people. It's not going to rule over the people. This is a very important idea. But there's also contained within this the idea of, of individualism. The idea that the individual is the fundamental atom of society. The individual is the one thing, and this is one of the things that was also close to their philosophical mind at the time, the one thing that when you boil it all the way down, that's what you get to. The one that it is the, as, as I guess Ayn Rand put it, not that I'm a gigantic fan of Ayn Rand, but that's the smallest minority is the individual. And if all throughout the liberal tradition, for example, in John Stuart Mill, you see this, the same idea is that it could be the whole world against one person. And if that one person is correct, then you have to be able to hear that. And so these are very important ideas. But as to whether or not we're forgetting those values or turning away from those values, it's a very interesting question because we're in weird times. Obviously, social media has completely changed our landscape. Social media has created the idea that speech is much more powerful than people had perceived before. Of course, we've known for, for centuries that speech is very powerful. You know, the pen is mightier than the sword has been around uh, an idea around for centuries. But but now people are realizing, you know, many of them for the first time, it's not the thing that you say to your friend behind closed doors or when you're walking down the street. It's now something everything is almost being broadcast. So the idea of speech has taken on a new valence for a lot of people. And they're, they're having to think through this issue in a new context. That's so a very interesting new milieu. And then you throw into this, you know, the rampant political polarization that has been rising around 
everything for these past 20 or 30 years, but especially since social media has, I remember when social media first came out, for example, and all of a sudden you discovered all your friends have terrible political opinions and you thought all these people that you like that you actually hate them. And, <laughs> you know, that was a very poisonous time. This is something that social media pulled back a veil on where normally we had been more private about our political opinions and we weren't politicizing everything. Now, of course, we're also in a milieu where there's, there's, a deliberate movement to politicize everything. Teaching is a political act. Critical thinking is a political act. I read today in a book about critical education theory. Again, um, everything is a political act. And that, you know, when you have that kind of a driver pushing on it, you've got a problem. Then we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, which brings to fore the idea that if, well, if everybody just behaved in a particular way, if we behaved as this kind of a collective, then we could possibly achieve these you know, great results. But because of freedom, we're not having that. And I had friends in Australia who were talking to me months ago who were saying, well, control works. Obviously, we suppress the virus. Control works. And now they're looking at the state of their country and they're saying maybe that maybe we should have not been so quick to say control works because now they're locked down again and um, very vigorous, you know, very strong restrictions. And it's just not tenable over the long term, even with something like a pandemic. But people get very scared, even without the media amplification of something like a pandemic. People get very scared. People were very scared under Trump that he was a tyrant and he was going to destroy the West and he was going to destroy the world and all of these things. People, all of this fear leads to a desire to either become tribal politically or to start thinking in terms of collectives. And individualism and freedom of speech have to be curtailed against the so-called greater good in such conditions and people become more and more sympathetic to that. So we find ourselves, I think, it was a kind of a little bit rambly, but I think we find ourselves in a situation now where we've had the not the erosion of liberal values, but they're they're going soft. There's they got squishy since the late 1980s. And people aren't thinking in terms of why they need to be defended. They aren't thinking in terms of that freedom of speech is the, you know, oppressed group's greatest tool. They aren't thinking that way any longer. And then we start finding ourselves in these kind of, whether they're manufactured fear mongering through media and other things, or politicians being, you know, trying to exploit divide and conquer techniques or whatever they happen to be, or whether they are just utterly natural responses to pandemics or, you know, the, the, whether I and everybody knows now, so it's not a secret that I'm a fan of Donald Trump, but I was not when he was elected. And I had the, the whole, you know, derangement syndrome and laying in the floor and having a hard time. It was very embarrassing to look back at. But the truth is, that this, <laughs> whatever you think whatever. of Trump, whether you like him or not, it rec represented a dramatic aberration from the expected normal. And this was very you know, when you have something like that, it's very disturbing. This big outsider, brash, speaking wildly, media hatred all around him, whipping up various things. Now he's going to be leader of the free world. It looks like he's praising dictators and so on. Everybody's very scared of what's going to happen. When you get into these kinds of situations, you start to see both polarization and you see the death of individualism and free speech. Because, well, if you think about... um the freedom to speak, then people are going to hear ideas that maybe you don't want. Maybe if Trump couldn't speak, Trump couldn't become a leader. And you say, well, that's Trump. But the exact same argument was made in 1965 by Herbert Marcuse, one of the big neo-Marxists, the father of the new left. We live in his world today, whether we like it or not, and we shouldn't like it. And he wrote an essay in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance. And he made the argument that if we, well, if we wouldn't have allowed Hitler to speak, Hitler never would have come to power. And so maybe we need to, he says, censor and even pre-censor certain movements, certain ways of thinking, because 
then terrible things wouldn't necessarily be able to take root and happen. And so you see this move toward censorship and you see people rationalizing censorship and they say, well, you know, if there wasn't all this misinformation about viruses, then this, and if there wasn't all this misinformation about the country, then, then that. And, and so you're starting to see that squishiness of those liberal values starting to give way to a, oh no, things are scary and control does work at least in the short term, you know, but as I think some Australians are waking up to now, you know, the devil will collect his due on the other side. Um, so I'm hoping that we can awaken a rearticulation of those liberal values and the importance of freedom of speech and the importance of uh, elevating the individual as the place where rights mean something and exist. Groups is not that place. Groups can be unfairly, the individuals who are within groups, I should say, can be unfairly excluded from certain rights and privileges in society by virtue of their group membership, but you can't actually extend rights to groups. That doesn't make sense. You're extending the rights of the individuals within the groups, and you're either excluding them based on group membership or not. So the the the, the movement that we're up against now, the woke or the critical social justice or whatever we want, critical race theory, whatever we want to call it, has turned this back upside down and um, has been very successful in seducing people into thinking that way. But I think we need to really start trying to reject Fukuyama's claim from 1989. History is clearly not over. We are clearly living in it. And we need to rearticulate the values that, like you said, have produced the most prosperous nation and a model for prosperity in other nations throughout the world. Um, I don't get into American exceptionalism. I just think that the ideas America was founded on are particularly fantastic. And I think that they can work in most places um, when they're embraced. And what the result will be will be prosperity and growth and the um, diminution of um, poverty, starvation, infant mortality, etc., all across the board. So I think that it's very important that, that we try to rearticulate these values in this, I think, narrowing window that we have left to do so. Mm. And I, I guess, actually, we can come back to some of the stuff I want to ask you about, because like something you've mentioned there leads leads quite nicely on to another thing I wanted to ask you about. And so you've, you've sort of um, hinted to it there that, that we have that it's not so much American exceptionalism as it is, I see, perhaps you could describe it as the values of the Enlightenment, um, but it's it's very much the the ideas that, that most of the developed world now was founded upon. And, and, and to some extent, a lot of people point to um, uh, these being Judeo-Christian values founded in, like the, the moral foundation comes from the Bible. And um, actually something that, that uh, Jordan Peterson actually brings up quite a lot is that um, the uh, at least a theme that he draws from the Bible. Uh, this may just be his interpretation, but is that the idea that that speech is the way to rectify the world and set it to right? Like that's where it, that's that's where you begin to to set the evils of the world to right or the wrongs is by speaking the truth. Um, and so, so, to what extent do you actually think that? Um, the, the developed world as such was founded on those um, Judeo-Christian values. And uh, yeah, let's just start with that. And do you think that those are the reasons for the, the prosperity? Uh, or do you think it's perhaps the, the freedom that has come along with those? Because um, I know some, some historians, uh, two guys whose names I completely um, cannot draw on right now, but they wrote a book called um, Why Nations Fail. And the overarching theme that I, from the entire book 
is that freedom, whether that's political or economic freedom, that as, as that increases, societies become more prosperous. And then as that gets taken away throughout history, then they decline in, in their, yeah, in their prosperity and their economic success and political success, just however you want to define it, like societal, um, standards and uh, living standards of living and so so yeah do, do, do you think it's we're basing that on those judean christian values or do you think that it's the freedom that's come along with them that that is the thing that's made it made those nations prosperous this is an extremely difficult and complicated question that we could spend hours on um, <laughs> the freedom those. i will just put will straight just... out it's the freedom that is creating the prosperity but Freedom is intrinsically paired with responsibility and responsibility requires some kind of a moral sensibility. And so Christianity and Judeo-Christian values can provide a moral sensibility. And they did provide a broadly common sensibility for most of the people throughout the West, because most of the people throughout the West were generally or broadly Judeo-Christian. That's not to say necessarily that everybody has to be Judeo-Christian or even based on Judeo-Christian values or whatever. But ultimately, is that Judeo-Christian values led to um, tyranny, and then they were secularized in the sense that people were given that First Amendment, as we call it, freedom of belief. And in the process, that freedom and that secularization, that taming of the religious impulse to collectivize enabled the the growth of prosperity. So it was having the moral backbone that came with having those values combined with the ability to be free and to pursue one's own self-interest and pursuit of happiness as it were life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness are, are the three um, inalienable rights named specifically in the Declaration of Independence that we threw at your bloody island in 1776. Um, so that said, um, I Technically, think I'm even, Irish, so we were also uh, victims of the British Empire. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, well. There we go. Okay, so true enough. Sorry about that. Um, um, no, I'm the in Northern Ireland is complicated. <laughs> I think you were victims of, of us too, uh, but I think they call that potato splaining now, so we're not allowed to do that. Um, <laughs> sorry, you, sorry, you don't get to be oppressed, be oppressed. Um, um, even though you have you been. Have been. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just off the line. Off. So. <laughs> I think Peterson's generally correct, but I don't know that it's, I mean, maybe this is a very Judeo-Christian thing because, you know, you can look at John 1 in the beginning, there was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, etc. So you can look at things like that. Those values are there and the, obviously the tradition and the Judaic thing, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees, the Pharisees are making arguments about the law blah, blah, blah. And Jesus is giving, you know, these allegorical speeches and these sermons and things like that. So he's using speech to change things. I think the general principle is, in fact, though, that ideas have consequences. It's a very simple thing to understand is that ideas have consequences and as they spread. So when you have ideas like that, we should put freedom first, but that to understand freedom requires to understand responsibility. Well, then you have something there. Um, that's a set of ideas that comes out of what we would identify as the Scottish or British Enlightenment as compared to, say, the French Enlightenment, which is a bit different, and the German Enlightenment, which went idealist and got a bit weird. Um, that very specifically created situations that seemed to, I mean, to, in a word, work. Um, those ideas were very successful. Uh, so it, it's... The values contained within Christianity, however, did provide that kind of common sensibility because what we had as, as, a, as a fundamental problem 
with liberalism. This is people, you know, the reactionaries are quick to point out liberalism generates communism, blah, blah, blah. This is incorrect. It's that liberalism um, doesn't do what people want it to do when they're not thinking clearly about it. People believe they, I hear this criticism all the time. They say that liberalism doesn't provide anybody meaning and that's its greatest strength. People think about it completely wrongly because we're not thinking about what liberalism actually provides to people. Liberalism provides freedom. It provides the freedom to chase your own meaning where you want to find it. So if you want to be a freaking communist, you can be a freaking communist. If you want to be a Calvinist, you can be a Calvinist. If you want to be a Catholic, you can be a Catholic. If you want to be a Muslim, you can be a Muslim. If you want to find your meaning through crystals or going out on hikes or talking with friends or drinking good wine, whatever you want to do, you find your meaning your way. But if you think that the system is going to provide your meaning, you're completely wrong. And the question is, of course, everything comes in trade-offs. So the question is, for all, there's a lot of people who fall through the cracks in liberalism because they can't figure out how to find meaning for themselves that actually means something. But on the other hand, when you have an enforced meaning structure, like say a universal Catholic church, there are a lot of people who fall through the cracks, who don't want to believe that way or worship that way or think that it matches what the Bible says, or maybe they're Muslim and they don't care what the Bible says, or maybe they're Jewish and they don't accept the gospel. And so, you know, maybe you're feeding them beautiful Hamoni Barico to figure out if they're a Jew and then you're killing them. I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing where you don't want the, there are people falling through the cracks in both regards. And liberalism is supposed to be a conflict management solution that allows people to pursue meaning in their own way and that leads people not to um, necessarily judge people for finding their meaning in a different way. You know, but that you could say is a, a Judeo-Christian value, judge not lest ye be judged, uh, treat the neighbor as you would want to be treated. These are definitely principles that were, you know, cropped up in other places, but they're also very strong and I mean, very prominent, put very deeply and upfront in the Judeo-Christian system. Another thing, though, that I think is much more important within the Judeo-Christian system that led to liberalism, and it's probably the most important idea, we can talk about the word and the speech and the arguing and this and that and the other is, no, it's the, it's the idea of the imago dei, that we were made in the image of God. So this is the basis of the universal humanity claim of liberalism. This is the basis of all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. This is the basis of everything. Why? Because each of us, regardless of what we look like, regardless of our, our attributes, regardless of what we've done with our lives, regardless of the mistakes we've made, this is a very powerful idea. We're made in the image of God. And um, this is, you know, kind of the deepest root of what we might call equality theory, which the, the critical theories explicitly reject. And I think that that has been an incredibly important value for us to all remember, like you and I may be different in some ways, but, you know, there's some, whether you want to refer to it religiously as some kind of a divine spark, or if you want to refer to it in, a, in another sense, is there's some kind of profound commonality between us because we're both human. You know, we both bleed red. We both experience pain. We both enjoy certain things, et cetera. That puts people on a kind of footing to treat other people the way that they, that, that you yourself would want to be treated. And it, and it opens up the ability to look at individuals, not necessarily as members of collectives. Each person is, you know, made in the image of God in the, the Judeo-Christian view, and is therefore a, afforded the 
respect and dignity that comes with such a thing. And at the same time, each person is, you know, a child of God in the same sense that is an individual who has to be judged on their merits, has to be judged on the content of their character, as the saying has been made cliche, unfortunately. They have to be judged on who they happen to be and what they've done with their lives, You know, things that are worth judging. So you've mentioned Jordan Peterson, and that's, I think, where we get the growth of something very valuable out of this this bedrock that I've just mentioned. And that thing is that Jordan Peterson says, you know, that societies always form hierarchies. They will, they will, it's one of his, if you were to boil Jordan Peterson down to like a handful of points, that's one of the maybe top three. The lobsters. Societies will always form hierarchies. So you have the lobsters, that's right. You have to figure out what kind of a hierarchy do you want? And his point to maybe oversimplify it, but one of his strongest points, in my opinion, is that when you base your hierarchy on competence, you minimize corruption. Again, everything's trade-offs. It's not necessarily to say that, you know, a competence-based hierarchy is totally realistic. It's not to say one thing. It's to say that when you base your hierarchy on competence, you minimize corruption. And you're not going to root out corruption. Corruption is always going to be there. And in fact, this is almost just by definition. Corruption is the uh, you could define corruption meaningfully as the deviation from competence, the, you know, the promotion by some variable other than, than, than merit or character. And character is, in a sense, just merit within you know, personal integrity, whether you see that as, as something mental and emotional or whether you see that as something spiritual is up to you. Um, so this grows out of those same ideas. So when you kind of combine all of that and you say, well, how important are Judeo-Christian values, you know, well, you have Judeo-Christian values now providing certain common ideas like that we're made in the image of God, that we're children of God. Each person's an individual under that, but that we have a great deal in common and we can understand the world and we can put certain values first, like that we should judge by character, like that we should not prejudge lest we be judged, that we should um, accord one another with a certain level of dignity that certainly isn't based in prejudice, uh, you know, that isn't diminished, I should say, by prejudice. And that we should, you know, when you get to especially the Protestant side of these things, which is famous for its alleged work ethic, um, which was very significant in the founding of the United States, of course, that, you know, we should be responsible, that we have a responsibility to to be good, do good, and and to do things, but to do so volitionally rather than through the compulsion of the state or through the compulsion of the priest or through the compulsion of some cartel or mafia or whatever. Um, when you start to look at all of that, you can see how that kind of backbone of values and also, as, as you noted, the truth being kind of central to all of this, uh, you know, veering toward the truth, always veering toward the truth. If we get Lutheran, you know, here I stand for I can do no other, so help me God. He believed he was speaking the truth and that he could not violate, whether he was right or wrong, what he believed to be true, you know, uh, at tremendous threat to himself. So you have all of these kinds of mentalities that go along with that kind of Judeo-Christian um, backbone. Not to say that other traditions don't have other backbones, and it's not to say that we can't, you know, find meaning and value in other ways. But we have to remember also that the um, one of these values was also when we're coming out of the Reformation is that 
you know, who are we as man to under to claim that we understand God and to to speak for God for all men? So there, there, there we get to that back to that freedom of speech and freedom of belief thing in the First Amendment. So you can kind of see how those values are all kind of there. But the the thing is, is we are in a position now where we have to recognize that freedom you know, can veer two ways. It can veer toward prosperity or can veer toward kind of destructive hedonism that kind of ends in a nihilistic, you know, bad state. And and the, the difference really comes down to understanding that freedom has to be paired with responsibility. Um, if you're going to be free, it's your duty uh, as a price of that freedom to be as responsible as you can. And that's, of course, what people get mad about, you know, with the trolls on Twitter, they're not behaving responsibly, for example. Um, if they were behaving more responsibly, then, you know, they wouldn't be causing this. this is what people are worried about with the free speech. You know, if people would speak responsibly instead of irresponsibly, if they would do the research first, if they would share only articles that they actually read and understood, Da, 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 da. If they were more responsible, then we wouldn't need to, to restrict speech, but they're irresponsible, so we need to restrict speech. I don't agree with that analysis. It's, it's profound that we can actually ignore people if we want to. I think that the, the answer is to speak, everybody to speak the truth to the best of their ability um, and to realize that not everybody's always speaking the truth. There's humor, there's irony, there's satire, there's also lying. There's also manipulation. There are people who are not always um, good. And I think, again, just to bring back one more Judeo-Christian value, is there's a strong streak within the Enlightenment, as we call it, that comes out of this uh, view. The Christians believe that human beings are fallen creatures, taken by sin, that we are prone to lying, we are prone to self-interest, we are prone to all of these deviations from responsibility. And so the systems that were built, like liberalism, to deal with conflicts under such a set of assumptions are going to work to minimize the impact. They're going to understand that not everybody is being honest. Not everybody, there's a certain, you know, maturity instead of naivety in, in understanding how people work. So I think that that's extreme. I think that personally, I think the Calvinists take it too far with the total depravity and all of this. But that's my opinion, um, which I'm still allowed to say because they don't have a dictatorship over us, just like the Catholics don't have a dictatorship over them, et cetera, anymore. And so this is the kind of thing that that I think that these values do provide something. And we do need to have a set of common values and a set of common stories and a set of common reference. Like if I say John 1, people should have some idea what that is if, if I'm going to use it as a cultural referent. If I'm going to talk about, you know, something about, you know, Moses. It's a good cultural referent. We have to have some set of shared stories and values and and whatever they happen to be. Um, I think civilizations and, and societies are projects in the works. And of course, you know, it's it's more relevant to most people alive today that I can mention something out of Seinfeld than I can out of the Bible. And people will, will connect with that, but at least it's a set of shared stories. It's when we start fragmenting that and changing away from a common sensibility to say an intersection an intersectional sensibility, that we lose track of that commonality and we lose track of that basis where we understand what sensibility and responsibility behind the freedom actually mean. Now, this requires people to be both educated and um, to be thoughtful about this. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, originally a liberal education was about, was to, to, to bring people into that ability to be thoughtful and reflective in the correct ways. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot there I'd like to address, actually, that you said. So some really fantastic points, actually. Um, the shared stories thing, I think, is is um, something the internet actually brought us back to 
the early internet, I feel it fractured um, the way we think about shared stories. And we'd all gone if, off in our little sort of own corners of the world. And then social media, like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube kind of brought us all back together. And then once again, began to fracture us through like filter bubbles, echo chambers, and now like literally just people wanting to have like conservative social media or, or right-wing social media and left-wing social media. And this is kind of once again, fracturing. So I'm, I'm not sure where we're going to go with that, but I loved your point actually there. Um, that I, ha I hadn't actually ever heard someone express that the idea that all men are created equal was drawn um, from um, the biblical idea that we're made in the, in the image of God. That's, that's, and therefore we're all equal. And that, 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 that kind of speaks to the, this, this tribalism in a way that we've experienced over the past, increasingly over the past sort of five, 10 years, um, that, that has kind of led to this idea that like one side, like your side is morally superior and the other side is wrong and, and stupid, whichever side you happen to be on, whether you're a, um, a left winger who believes that, you know, the right wing are dangerous or whether you're a right winger who believes the left wing are dangerous, that like we, we've got to this point where we've kind of forgotten the, we, we don't, we don't consider that, that idea that we're all created equal because, oh, well, they're just bad people now, whoever, whoever the other side happens to be. And, and that, that kind of like brings nicely into this idea that we have lost many of those Judeo-Christian values that are sort of inherent in our, our, our system now that, that you don't have to be uh, Christian or, or, or Jewish to, to see many of the things that are written in the Bible as being like a, a moral way to live, you know, tell the truth, don't, don't murder, don't steal, that those sorts of things are so inherent in, in what we believe to be the right way to live as a society that we don't even consider them to be based in the Bible. But like, uh, ultimately, that's quite possibly where they they came from. Although, you know, there's obviously varying examples of similar stories told throughout the world in all the different religions. Um, but we, we're kind of losing this underlying story, as you mentioned, especially as things become more fractured. And um, do you think that loss of the underlying story is the thing that has contributed to the sort of crumbling of once accepted like societal structures and the questioning of, of, of everything from, from like the ideas of, of government freedom down the whole way to like gender, sex and, and biology that, that kind of makes up the the woke movement as 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 such like do you think that the loss of that shared story is the thing that's led us to this point because um something that douglas murray actually often notes is that interestingly this is a similar trend as to what happened and the at the end of the or in the the late stages of the roman empire that there was a similar sort of uh, decoupling of um society from those traditional sort of gender roles or however you want to define it um do you think that that our loss of a shared story is is, is the reason for that or do you think there's something else there no i think that's probably the primary driver the the, the lack and, and everybody's you know the 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 beauty of a pure a pluralistic society is that there should be many stories that are different happening at the superficial level but we have some deeper shared story that runs underneath it 
um, America is the land of opportunity is a great example of such a thing, right? So it doesn't matter if you came from whatever other country. It doesn't matter if you were born here. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, whatever race, it doesn't matter whatever gender, your opportunity lies here, right? It exists here and it is the land of opportunity. And the, the story is that anybody who wants to work hard, try to make something of their lives can be successful at that and can take responsibility to climb out of whatever set of dependency or whatever that they're in rather than falling into resentment about the state of dependency that they're in and wanting to break the system. And so we have, I think a lot of that being rooted in this deeper underlying shared story. Uh, and I think that that, I think we're, we're losing that forest for the trees, right? In a sense, we're looking at these narrower stories and well, true freedom means I can do whatever I want. And there's a degree to which that's true, except that um, if you focus too much upon that, it's easy to get very resentful about the things that you feel like you should be able to do, but that you can't do. It's like a generator of resentment. Um, and it, it's very dangerous. I mean, maybe, you know, we talk a lot about postmodernism when we start talking about the destruction of shared stories. And... Um, I think postmodernism has to be talked about there because I think it is what was able to destroy such a thing. You know, Jean-Francois Lyotard and the postmodern condition refer to these things as meta narratives and that, that we should be skeptical. He says that he defines to simplify in the extreme. He says that we have to define postmodernism as or postmodernity as a uh, incredulity toward meta narratives. We don't think these things are actually true. America is a land of opportunity. Eh, maybe, you know, maybe for you, but not for me. And you can see where that creates this access. I think the most, in fact, postmodern thing, you know, the best encapsulation of postmodernism I ever saw was in a Saturday Night Live skit from maybe a decade or more ago that um, was making fun of it at the time. Now, of course, know, of they course. wouldn't do that now, <laughs> but they were making fun of it at the time. And they had this character who was allegedly is very clearly a kind of a creepy, perverted looking guy and he was holding a sex education symposium as an enthusiast or whatever. And the kind of punchline of the whole thing, while he's saying these extraordinarily, you know, out there behaviors or whatever, and kind of talking about them and role playing people through them or whatever on this fake skit is, is that weird? Who's to say? Like nobody has the authority to declare what is weird and what is not weird. And when you get to that, point where nobody is able to have any authority to say that's a strange way to, to live or a strange way to, to behave, then you are going to start risking having that shared common story. And I think it's not a big deal. You know, if you want to do some of the things that are in that skit and the privacy of your privacy own home, is that home. weird? Is well, that who's, weird? To well who's to say? You're doing it in the, pri you know, the private and the public spaces are not the same, but we've just seen this big debate with, you know, the pride parades through June on pride month where it was, should the kinksters be there? And they're like, you know, having children come up and like pet people who are wearing leather and leashes and walking around like their dogs or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, I think the general consensus had been, well, if you want to do that kind of thing, great, but not in public and not with children. Right. There's there are lines. And of course, the postmodernists, when we start talking about very specific things like that, most people know that there is a petition in France, very famously petition in France to abolish the age of consent laws in France, which were at 15 at the time anyway. And virtually every one of the major postmodern philosophers signed it uh, among, you know, many other people. So 
something is not right there. But um, postmodernism obliterates the ability to have a shared story. And then when you add in, so when we have the woke movement, and this gets a little technical, we've taken this kind of neo-Marxist approach. I mentioned Herbert Marcuse a little bit ago. He is one of the great critical theorists and great meaning big, not great meaning good. Um, we take that line of thought and then we attach to it the idea that there's no such thing as shared stories. What you end up with is the ability to look at every different group of people like it has its identity group, like it has its own culture and that those cultures can't understand one another. And it's impossible to get a common story because the claim that there's a common story requires the imposition of somebody else's story over somebody else's to say, oh, well, we're all American. You can read even back in 1903, The Souls of Black Folk and W.E.B. Du Bois, first chapter, he says that, that um, should black people in America bleach their souls in white Americanism, right? And it's like, well, you're looking to have two different cultures at the same time. And he talks about in that same paragraph about the emergence of double consciousness, about having two different cultural identities at the same time. But the point is that if we want to be a country like E Pluribus Unum, which the United States originally was founded on, you have to be one culture. And then you have kind of like superficial cultural aspects above that. And that's really the war that we're seeing right now. We're leaning again, like I said, we're losing the forest of we're a bunch of people who are ultimately all sharing some kind of common humanity. And we have some deeper, bigger story, whether it's founded in the nation, whether it's founded in universal humanity, whether it's founded in, you know, this weird ride or on this spaceship earth, as it's been phrased, this rock rolling around the sun. Um, but at this, then we have our little stories, so you have your religion or whatever, and that's like your little story, but it doesn't matter in comparison to the big story, the meta, meta narrative. It doesn't matter in comparison, you know, to whatever else. Your family is a little story. It doesn't have to be religion. Your friends group, your social network is a little story, your community that you live in, your city, you know, and you can have pride, you know, I'm from, you know, whatever, I'm from Tennessee and screw you, Kentucky, but we're actually just doing it like it's funny. You're Irish and screw you, Britain, and but it's so it should be fun, not serious, because when it's serious, it turns into wars and bombs and, and discord. And when it's fun, it's fun. And we should be trying to break down that kind of, you know, taking ourselves or our little or little groups, the trees rather than the forest too seriously. And that requires finding that common story again. So I think that, yes, I mean, I was, again, a long kind of answer, but I think that, yes, the loss of the common story is the place where you're starting to see this disintegration. And then when you start, especially, you know, Douglas Murray mentioning in the, you know, the sexual mores and everything else falling apart, that was something that happened in Rome. It was also something that was deliberately engineered by George Lukács when he tried to bring communism to Hungary in the 1910s. Uh, sexual liberation movement arose and was rapidly co-opted by the neo-Marxists who, had, you know, Herbert Marcuse writing Eros and Civilization had similar understanding that if you start tearing that apart because sex is such a strong drive for people and you start saying, oh, I should be able to do this and I should be able to do that. Total freedom, loss of responsibility, nothing in common. You know, they, they understood that this is a very powerful way to start tearing apart an existing system. And so that's a very concerning issue as well. Uh, but yeah, the loss of the shared story, I think, is is really key because in the story is is you know uh, the the range of values 
that we consider to be fitting to ourselves. And it turns out that being human, whether you say because of image of God in the Bible or because you understand evolution and realize the facts of that, human beings are a constrained system. There's only so much variation in terms of what is um, within what what is human. There's only so much variation also, also in terms of what's going to work as social animals who have to understand ourselves and understand ourselves and interact socially. Um, and if we don't get that right, societies will start to fray and then crumble and then come apart. Mm. It's interesting there that you mentioned this idea that, that it can all be fun as long as we, we have the, the overarching idea of the, the shared story that, that, you know, we all need each other. And it's something that gets brought up very often is we've, we've kind of lost the idea that the left needs the right and the right needs the left for, for, you know, both sides have, have points on, on some things is like, just, just to like have a, a strange example or a random example would be that, um, you know, the right have the point that, you know, hierarchies, um, based on competence produce like the best and most prosperous societies. But the left at the moment, I also believe have a point when they say that the, the, uh, the level of inequality means that there are too many people stuck at zero, unable to get to the next rung of the ladder. And therefore the hierarchy doesn't function correctly. And that like, do you, you need the, this, you need both sides of the, of the, of the coin essentially in order to, uh, that that used to be like the shared story that we had that, you know, we would respect each other's uh, opinions. And, and the, the, the idea that you said that fun is crucial, that, that, that it doesn't devolve into war it, it speaks to this thing that we've seen where comedians are starting to be censored and you get like comedy shows that have specific episodes taken off of, um, off of streaming services and whatnot. And, like I remember, um, for example, there was uh, a show called Benidorm and you, you probably have never heard of it, but it's, it's just about like a little resort in Spain where a bunch of English holiday makers go every year. Um, so it's quite well known in, in the UK, at least anyway. And, um, one of the, they had one, one episode removed because someone was in blackface in the episode, but the whole point of the, the person being in blackface was to say, Hey, this is an awful person and they're laughing at the, uh, like it was the, it's the, it was both that this is an awful person. Look at this awful person. And also the idea that, um, we should like the, the, the sheer just sort of like gut wrenching. Ooh, that's not okay. That comes along with it is kind of reinforcing the idea that, yeah, that's probably not okay. That or that's well, uh, yeah, to a lot of people, it's definitely not okay. Um, and, uh, and the, the, it was funny. I saw that this episode was being pulled because the show itself, the most well-rounded, nicest and like moral center of the entire show is, um, this like 50 year old guy who likes to dress in drag. So it's not like the, it's not like the, the showrunners were bigoted when they made him the, like the, 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 the morals, like he's like, yeah, the, the highest, like most moral character and the nicest in the whole show. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just, do you think that, 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 that thing where we're seeing comedians being censored and, and comedians sort of unwilling to, well, most comedians unwilling to just say, make fun of, 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 yeah, specific things is, is like a, 
a symptom or like a really like a warning sign. It's a warning. It's a flashing red light that we should all be paying a lot of attention to. The fact that we commonly say things like, well, even seeing these shows coming, I mean, episodes being pulled down or that we say you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today or whatever other film from kind of the heyday. Uh, this is a flashing red light of a society in danger. What I don't, I mean, I'm going to be very strong with what I'm about to say, and I know that this might be a little upsetting, but I don't think that the people who purvey critical theories know how human beings work. I actually think that they have enough of a pathology in misunderstanding humans where they'll watch an episode like that and they won't get the moral point. Instead, they'll see a person in blackface and think, oh, no, you know everybody's going to take the wrong point from this, that it's okay to do this rather than the obvious point that's being made. And you see this story again and again and again. My favorite example of this is from this claymation, you know, stop motion animation film made in the 1950s, Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer for Christmas. And, you know, you couldn't imagine, I don't know if you've seen it with the Island of Misfit Toys and all the like little broken toys and Rudolph with a stupid red nose and they like all like meet each other, like they team up and they save Christmas or whatever the deal is, right? But the whole point is it's, it's literally the Island of Misfit Toys, like the ones that were broken and that were you know, like, you know, they don't work right. The whole point of the film overall is don't undercount or don't discount those people. Don't bully and, and there's all these examples, you know, where Rudolph's being bullied and the other goofy broken toys are being bullied. And of course, they're the ones that save the day. So the whole theme of the thing is that don't discount the different, right? It's a very progressive message. And it's been more or less canceled now because of all the scenes of bullying. And, you know, it's like Rudolph has his like little girlfriend reindeer or whatever the deal is. And like her dad is like, I don't want you with any kind of red nosed freak or whatever, you know. And they're like, well, that just reinforces like not understanding that every kid like five years old watching this knows that what he's saying is bigotry and not good. Like it's actually conveying the opposite message. The thing is, is with critical theories, again, I don't think they understand humans. I genuinely don't think they understand humans because if they did, they would understand that comedy is the true expression of critical theory. If critical theory in its most generous explanation, and I'm not saying that it's the same thing because they hate comedy, so it's clearly not, but critical theory is supposed to expose unexamined assumptions and biases that create unjust circumstances in society. That is the most generous thing that you can say about what a critical theory is supposed to do. Nothing does that better than, than comedy that touches upon these kinds of points. And the irony is, is that everybody who identifies themselves as a critical theorist can never see it. They don't understand how human beings connect to irony. They don't understand how human beings can see something that's making fun of something that's garbage in society. And that the message that you get isn't, oh, here's the garbage thing being portrayed. Therefore, it's obviously legitimized. It is, in fact, being made fun of and moving people's moral center away from that. One of my other favorite examples of this is the movie Spaceballs is very subtle. There's a scene. I don't know if you've seen Mel Brooks's Spaceballs, but it's fantastic. It's total classic. And so they're, you know, they're trying to find the escaped people on some desert planet. It's a spoof of Star Wars. And so they say, we're going to have to comb the desert. And of course they play the pun. So it shows the next scene. They're down at the, the desert 
And, you know, they got the Rick Moranis lead character standing up there wearing like a safari hat with a bullhorn. And he yells down to the, you guys found anything yet? And the little stormtrooper characters have a big old comb that they're literally dragging across the desert. Like, no, nothing yet, sir. And it turns out that they're both white. And we go to the next, you guys, what about you guys? You know, and they're dragging a big comb across the desert. You know, just absurd humor. And no, nothing yet, sir. And then he turns and he's like, how about you to a third group? And it's two black guys with a pick instead of a comb, like a little skinny pick. And they're like, we ain't found shit. And it's like contained within that is the idea that black people are being stereotyped and that they're given like a, they're not given as good of a tool. And then that they're actually, you know, the only characters are self-aware that what's going on is BS. Like that this is stupid. They are actually held up as the only characters who really know what's going on being ridiculous that you're going to drag combs across the desert and that they're going to be given some stupid stereotypical, you know, tool. It's the, the deconstructive power of the injustice of prejudicial assumptions is so deeply baked into that. And it's just funny that you're laughing at it and you don't even realize why you're moving away from that kind of racism when you're going through it. It's actually what a critical theory should look like. It's causing people to question their assumptions. It's causing people to re-examine biases. It's causing people to present with that in a way that actually moves them away from injustice and toward whatever. And it also, one other point with this is it, it allows you to navigate difference. Humor does. Humor allows you to navigate difference because if you and I have some difference, whatever it is, nationality, for example, if you can make a little joke at me, and I take it in good stride, you know that I'm not going to be all sensitive or you find where I will be. And we can talk about why if we need to. And if I throw some little joke at you and you laugh, then I know, OK, so I can trust this person not to flip out on me and I can we can start to figure out the boundaries. This is secretly why women tend to find funny guys attractive because they are able to use humor successfully to navigate the boundaries to find out what are the right, you know, cause like if you're going to like hook up with somebody, for example, it's like, you got to figure out what's okay. Nobody, very few people want to be like a creeper or a rapist or whatever, but you have this, like, you know, you, nobody wants to pull out a menu and say, do you like X? Do you, are you afraid of Y? You know, but it, you make the little jokes and you do this. This is, these are social functions of humor that allow people to navigate awkwardness and difference and when you start closing that down, you start closing down the ability to relate to one another. You turn everything litigious and make everything contractual. And it kills off that intuitive side and drags it into a very managed, non-human scenario. It's again, I just don't think they understand human beings. I don't think they, I just don't think that they understand human beings and how human beings actually exist. And that's fine. And we can say that they, you know, we pity them or that we, you know, want to hear what they have to say because maybe it gives us insights or that they need a therapist to try to work through some of that difficulty. If it's impacting their ability to navigate life, by definition, it's a psychopathology. And we don't have to be judging that. We don't have to use stigma. But what you don't ever want to do is put those people in charge of how everybody else has to live. And that's what's happening. That's why comedians are afraid to make a joke. That's why Blazing Saddles couldn't be made is because those people are in charge of how everybody else has to live. That's where you start to have a disaster coming into play when people who don't understand the realities of being human in a healthy way dealing with the difficulties of being a social animal where there is difference where there is 
you know, ambiguity, where there is the lack of knowing one another, lack of knowing where boundaries are, needing to find them, but without some very kind of clunky, contractual, litigious, you know, way where, and then where people are going to blow up. Those people just shouldn't have power over other people. It's a very simple concept. And the less power those people have over other people, the better. Right now, we're in a society where they get into a company or they get into an institution and they're like writing community guidelines for everybody. And they're like telling comedians what jokes they can make. Hint, comedians, you can make any joke you want because it's a freaking joke. It's the point of a joke. And if it offends some people, now there's conversations that are going to happen. And now we're navigating difference. Now we're breaking down barriers. Now we're getting into something. The I mean, if critical theorists understood humans and they were coming from a place of understanding humans, they would love comedy more than anybody else, but they hate it, which means that they're people who should have no power over anybody. Yeah, I mean, comedy is the most, I think, powerful way of critiquing power is because you're, you're making fun of its, its stupidity. Um, you know, if you, can, if you can laugh at something's idiocy, then that robs it of all its power. I mean, well, let me tell like, you, let me tell you the one thing that you need to learn to be able to laugh at in that context more than anything isn't just say the government or something with power, it's yourself. It's your pretentious self. The the pretense that we walk around in our lives with from every waking moment has to be deflated if we're going to be successful, healthy, social people who get along well and are well adjusted, as we say, to life in a society, especially a big pluralistic society. You have to be able to deflate yourself. And if you comedy when it's done well, you're not just laughing at the scene. Sometimes you are, but you're often laughing at yourself. And, you know, many of the black comedians were so good at this through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. They would get white people to laugh at themselves for their preposterous Thing. The whole of critical whiteness studies is trying to get white people to be aware of a white identity, so to speak, and to be, you know, aware that it's a thing and that, it, it, you know, they're not immune to that and it's not totally universal. What could possibly do that better than Eddie Murphy putting on his white man voice? Everybody knows he's now talking like a white man, you know, and walking different. And it just makes it clear in a way where people get to laugh at themselves and relax about these things instead of being so stuffy and uptight about them. Again, if critical theorists understood human beings, they would love comedy, but they hate it. And that's it, it, a very profound idea. Do you think that's why um, the celebrities that manage to stay the most grounded tend to be the ones that have a group of friends around them who will make fun of them regardless? Oh, yeah, especially with celebrities, because because now that I've get a little taste of fame, it's very easy for me to see how um, it's a rocket ride to just thinking that you're like way more important and better than you are. Um, and it's you really it like it really has to be deflated um, and it has to be deflated again. The same kinds of rules apply. You know, it's like you don't want to be like taking people and like kicking them down and breaking their self-esteem and all of this. Um, especially people who are doing great things or, you know, whatever, but you do have to, you know, like there should be celebrities should be constantly exposed to mockery of celebrity culture, not necessarily of themselves, but of, you know, so, and I think we saw this, I was talking about this with some folks the other day when I was in, in Florida and I was talking about those, there's this rash of songs in the 1980s that were very popular, you know, like I want my MTV or whatever. Right. And so it's like, you know, there, if you listen to the song, they pretend, you know, they're, the song is written from the perspective, those dire straits, they're, they're, they're writing the song from the perspective of, um, blue collar guys making fun of rock stars, 
but they're actually therefore making fun of themselves. They're deflating themselves. You got the other one, and I can't think of the artist. I meant to look it up even because um, we got a whole conversation about it. But it's like the you know, my mom's rowdy does one eighty five. You know this this song. I lost my license. Now I can't drive. It, again, you have this. You know, life's been good to me so far. Is kind of like the refrain in that, and it's like they're making fun of rock star life. They're actually making fun of themselves with these songs. And they were very popular songs. And it that kind of like celebrities need a kind of constant exposure to making being made fun of for celebrity culture. For buy you shouldn't be buying into that. Like it's horrific. And next thing you know, you're Madonna crying in a bathtub because you don't have your attention anymore. You know, and there's a pandemic and you're not on stage. And so you're crying in your bathtub with like rose petals, and it's just it turns so cringy so fast that has to be deflated. It's like, and you know, oh, you know, we're in a pandemic. Let's put out a song that's going to save the world. Like, shut up. Just shut up. It's so stupid. It's just so dumb. And if, you know, that ego had been pricked a few more times instead of everybody catering to them all the time or whatever, maybe it would have been a little bit different. Maybe they would have done something more productive. Um, maybe they wouldn't have, have been so cringy. Uh, so I think that that's true and it, it, it's true for normal people, but it, it's extra true for celebrities, especially since so many people very wrongly look up to them. Um, I said that in Florida when I was there as well, is that you just, a lot of people are under the impression that they love Brad Pitt or Scarlett Johansson. It's like, no, you fell in love with the characters that they play, which are by definition works of fiction. Like you don't actually know those people, you know, these characters and I get it, you know, Forrest Gump, lovable guy. Whatever, you know, you fell in love with the character, but you don't know Tom Hanks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting. Actually, you get the this rise of like a whole new class of like podcasters becoming famous. But I actually get the sense that in a way you do know them to a certain extent. You get to spend many hours um, listening to their conversations as if you're just in the room at the same time. And, and my friends like to make fun of me, like A, for being fake news and uh, B, for having the arrogance to believe someone had listened to an hour of me talking. No, that's uh, good. I mean, that's good to hear from time to time. That's good yeah, to hear no, from time to time. I, I appreciate it a lot. It's because, it, you know, we can laugh about it. And then, you know, I just, I call them, I call one of them like a right wing troll. And, it's, you know, you, you just throw insults at each other. But, you know, it definitely keeps you in, in check. Um, but, um, James, I, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time here, but there's one final question I wanted to ask you is, um, do you think the internet is creating or accelerating this phenomenon that we've, we've kind of talked about here? Um, you know, we, we kind of mentioned how, how echo chambers and filter bubbles and stuff are, are making us more tribal. Um, how we've seen like a, an extreme amount of political polarization, whether that's been driven by social media or not, you know, people can argue about, but we've definitely seen it in conjunction with the rise of social media being more and more present in our lives. Do you think that the, the very nature of the internet is pushing us towards these extremes? And do you think the fact that we've been immersed in the digital world more so than the real world over the past 18 months has made it even worse or? Oh, yeah. And yeah. about 60 different oh, ways. Yeah, we won't talk about all ways. of them. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Definitely. The Internet um, is, a, is, is a strange phenomenon. So everything you just mentioned, so I don't have to like rehash any of that. Everything you just mentioned is a factor of these 60 dimensions. The Internet is also and I think this actually has to be noted. Um, the perfect breeding ground for like 
psychological operations. Like the, the nature of social media is that you're taking information out of context. So it's very easy to create, you know, I just saw one yesterday, an American politician. Love that quote. What's that? Taking the the, uh, social media is taking information out of context. I have to write that down. It is. I mean, that's all Twitter is. Twitter is an out of context machine. Um, Each little tweet and you can take a screenshot of the tweet. So maybe it's in the middle of a thread and all the context is gone or the replying to a specific person and the context is gone. Um, It's like the it's like an out of context machine Uh, and it deconstructs the meaning of what was actually being said. The the clipped format, the whole thing is just a mess. But there was a thing on speaking of Twitter yesterday and an American politician by a tractor and on the phone. And he's like, oh, President Biden had to track me down out here on the farm. But I just found time to take his call to talk about blah, blah, blah. And it turns out, like you can tell in the pictures, like the guy's wearing like a nice dress shirt. It's not like he's probably not farming. And you can look at the tractor and you're like, the tractor's old and it doesn't look like it is in good condition. And you're like, you know, some sort of thing. Well, it turns out, you know, just a little bit off camera. There's like a sign. It turns out it's a prop outside of a bar <laughs> and it's not even real. Like the tractor doesn't run. It's not a farm. It's on an apple orchard. It's a, a the bar serves hard cider from the apples and all of this. And it's owned by something. It's all fake. And like social media creates the ability to put out propaganda and even to do psychological operations where, you know, I mean, look at this QAnon phenomenon. I think it started as a joke and got co-opted by people who wanted to turn it into an operation because you can manipulate people extremely easily once you find something that they're latched into. Um, We keep finding out the different podcasters and so on are state assets. And it's just like, there's some funny stuff going on in the internet. It's like, we used to say, don't believe everything you see on TV. And it's like, I don't know what fraction of stuff you should believe that you see on the internet, but it's less like you can get attacked by bots. Like you can tweet the wrong thing. And then like nobody's with six accounts end up like swarming you or sorry, with like six followers on their account, swarm you. And they all get like a thousand likes on their stupid punk tweet that doesn't make any sense like there's nothing organic behind that something fake is happening and you don't know that until you know it and so it psychologically screws with you so there's a whole lot going on there but the the internet also and i think this is the most important part allows us to decouple our identity or our sense of identity from reality um we get to live in proxy uh or by proxy or we have this avatar and i think when we talk about the gender and sex stuff that gets really important because you have generations of kids growing up, playing around on the internet, trying to figure out who they are as they go through puberty and you get to be whoever you want on the internet. If you want to say that you're, you know, it used to be, you know, well, my Canadian girlfriend or whatever, (laughs) but now it's like, I'm a dragon, you know, and you can't say I'm not. It's like you literally can create five different personalities. You can intentionally live in a kind of multiple personality situation and who you are starts to become very, very important trying to figure out who you are and projecting that and understanding yourself in terms of the the kind of, like you said, filter bubbles that you end up caught in. It's a very dangerous scenario for creating identity issues and identity crises that are then very manipulable by a movement that came into existence 50 years ago, specifically for the purpose of manipulating identity to do a particular kind of activism. So the internet has dramatically accelerated this. Um, It's so easy to do all of these kinds of things, like to distort somebody's identity, to to do, you know, astroturfed activism, 
we, what was that story broke out where, what was it? Greta Thunberg accidentally tweeted out like the, the handler list or whatever, like all these different celebrities are supposed to say this at this time on Twitter and they're all paid to do it. And it's like, it's astroturfing, it's fake. And, but it looks organic. And so, I mean, I don't even think that's, I don't even think that's as fake as, as some of the, the really extreme astroturfing that happens where, um, like, uh, to, in a sense that like these, the celebrities, for example, with that Greta Thunberg thing, they believe what's being said. Sure, sure. Whereas I think there's, there's even more extreme versions of astroturfing where, uh, there is literally no one real behind it whatsoever. It's there's no people, thousands of accounts tweeting, yeah, tweeting either algorithmically generated stuff or just the same thing off of a script. We're even seeing that, you know, in religion now. There's a scandal gate or this scandal or sermon gate broken out in the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, super conservative religion apparently in the U.S. And it's like now they've tracked it back that the new, just newly elected president Ed Litton of the the Southern Baptist Convention. People found out, wow, he gave like word for word the same sermon as this other guy, J.D. Greer, this big pastor. And now people have dug into it. And it's like going back to like 2012, they've been giving identical sermons. And that's like real weird, right? They're not the same church. They're not like necessarily networks like that. And it's like, what's going on? And then it's been dug up. There's a particular service that like is a consultancy service that's probably writing their sermons for them. You know, it's centrally planned They're sermons. Your religion is astroturfed. Your, even your religion is astroturfed at that point. I mean, right. right? I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like throw something even stranger into the mix here for you. I was speaking to Sophie Zhang on the podcast a month or two ago, who was a, a whistleblower. I don't know if you saw, she came out on Facebook, um, from Facebook. She was saying, look, I was spotting all this inauthentic activity on Facebook regarding two elections in places like Mexico and a whole bunch of other stuff. And she tried to raise it and got, basically she's, she, she, she's under the impression she was fired because she was trying to get them to do something about it. And she, she raised an example with me where in Britain, there was a, a case of, they were known as the Boris bots. So it was um, a whole bunch of comments under um, Facebook statuses, for example, by um, Boris Johnson when he was running for prime minister and then early on in his campaign. And people were I, looking at this and being like, hey, look, all these people are saying the same thing. This must be a whole bunch of bots. Turns out there was a Facebook group where there was a whole bunch of people who were fans of Boris getting together to pretend to be bots to just completely fuck with the like people's perception of what was going on. Oh my, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, like it's like two, two levels, levels of BS. BS. Yeah. Um this is th and this is the kind of thing. So yes, yeah, social media has definitely and the internet have definitely expanded this uh capacity. They also you mentioned the last 18 months where we basically like you know, this is a wonderful way for us to speak. This is not a good way for us to connect. Um and I'm no insult to our conversation. I've had this experience now because I'm I've been traveling since last June actually pandemic be damned. And I've been getting together with people in person. And by September and October, I was meeting with groups of people, you know, actual conferences that people were like, well, let's socially distance. Let's do whatever they're going to make us do. And let's do it anyway. Let's get people together in the same room. And I was, I mean, it was like struck with like a hammer of how different the connection is when you meet with people in person versus when you meet with people digitally. Uh, this is unfortunately not real. Um, the perception that I have is that real life is what happens when you get offline has become so strong now that I've become, I wouldn't say I'm to the point of paranoid yet, but I 
tending toward the paranoid about all digital interaction. Um, it's just, you don't know what's uh, on social media in particular, like somebody slides into my DMS. I don't know if that person's like really them. I don't know if it's a person impersonating them. I don't know who that person is to the point now where it's like, I'm very hesitant to make any, you know, to, to give anything away to anybody who I don't already know in person and know for sure that's who I'm interacting with. It's, it's a very odd situation, the amount of distrust that the social I have for social media right now. And I'm reading that as a symptom, the social media is the home of a lot of this dysfunction. Now, I said, though, that it's not the same with connection. I spent a fair amount of time for the last couple of years when I would listen to people even in person talking about things I didn't want to hear, wishing I could block them. Like, I wish I could I have a block button in real life. And at first I thought that was funny. And then I realized it's not funny. <laughs> That's actually that social media is changing the way I think about social interaction. I no longer have to figure out how to live with people with whom I disagree and to hear them out and have a dialogue or figure out how to change the subject to keep the relationship going, which is also a very important skill. I just block them. And I wish I could block people in real life. And you start, you know, this is going to be very isolating. It's very damaging to think about other people this way, to to make our relationships more superficial rather than deeper. And I don't think it's a healthy direction. And I think, you know, I obviously don't behave the same way with people on social media as I do with people face to face. You know, you care about the person on a level. You don't want things to happen that, you know, you don't want to see that hurt on their face. You don't want to hear it in their voice. You don't want to. Um, I mean, there's lots of different very human things that we're very sensitive and intuitive about that, say, on Twitter, where I'm talking to somebody whose avatar is a cartoon character. Like hurt their feelings. Yes. OK. You know, who cares? They're not a person. They're a cartoon character on a stupid website that might actually even just be a bot. There's a high probability that the person who insulted me on social media is actually not even real. Or is somebody, as you just said, somebody pretending to be somebody who's not real so as to, to keep everything in a, in a mess of confusion. Um, so that all breaks down that ability for human beings to connect to other human beings, to see that humanity behind the human to that leads to being able to appreciate them in the way that liberal societies probably depend upon, even if you don't like somebody. Uh, and I worry quite a lot about, I, you know, I, I know that we're new to social media still. Like you look at the printing press came out, took a couple hundred years to figure that one out. Um, I don't think it'll take as long with social media and the internet um, because everything's so fast, but the, instability that this change has generated and its capacity to make open the door for all of these things. And there's still, like I said, there's like 60 dimensions. I won't get into it, but critical theory basically is hot takes and hot takes go viral. Chasing the click with the, with the, you know, edgy take, especially, you know, the, there's even comedy routines now about, you know, the formulaic nature of blogs and articles that are critical theory based, you know, the problematic nature of, you know, throw a dart, men in the throw a dart, you know, Southern hemisphere, when they throw a dart, eat churros, you know, it's just completely formulaic complaining nonsense, but that crap for a long time, it's starting to fall out of fashion, but that crap went viral because it's like, oh, wow. You know, it taps into that innate sense that we all have on some level. It's like, 
what I think about the world is somehow wrong. I now have enlightened Gnostic status because I understand things about the world that nobody else understands. And I'm a better and smarter and more moral person. And critical theory is extremely powerful at tapping into that instinct, that desire, that excitement, that it's a Gnostic instinct to have the special knowledge, to have the special insight, to understand how the systems of society are make things work completely differently than you actually thought they did. And it all goes viral very easily. Um, it's front end easy also to do social control. Uh, you can mob people on social media. You can bully them very easily. It's struggle sessions as they were, as it were, are very easy to do on social media until people realize that social media is super fake. And so the opinions of strangers on social media that might actually be bots or people pretending to be bots or bots pretending to be people pretending to be bots, all of those things don't actually mean anything. And you can actually just decide to have fun with the struggle session instead of caving in. And the next thing you know, you're crying on TV or something terrible, but psychologically on the front end, you're not ready for this or used to it. So it's, it's driven most of these dynamics and people I think are waking up, but they're going to have to wake up faster. Uh, and I, if I were to give people one piece of advice about social media, it's just to always keep in the back of your head. Real life is what happens when you get off of the device. Yeah. I mean, I, it's been, the, the pandemic has been great in that I have had the, I think I've done like a hundred podcasts, over a hundred podcasts in the last year. Um, one of which um, was in person. Now, I thankfully, um, come in August. Now I'm, I'm starting to book some more in person and we're getting, I'm getting back to like interaction with people. Are you, and as, as, um, as great as like this, things like this conversation have been like really, really interesting, enlightening, um, and, and fantastic to, to be able to talk to someone on the other side of the, uh, of the planet almost. It's the connection that you get in person is so much greater in, in so many yeah. senses. Um, and, and it's uh, what you've said about, about people jumping on specific topics, you get brigaded if you make the wrong opinion. I find it like that a it's, it's almost always from accounts that are like John six, seven, four, two, eight. Um, <laughs> and then, um, created this month. Yeah. Or like with two followers or something. And then, um, I find it interesting to watch the things to which there is no response. I find the silence far more um, interesting than what people jump on. Um, like for, yeah, for example, the thing that I keep trying to point out to people and um, in, in the UK at the minute is that, so the, there's a quite a, a significant portion of, of both the left and the right, but primarily the left at the minute in, in Britain that are concerned that the, the UK government is becoming very authoritarian. And they are calling, they're calling them fascists. I'm not quite sure fascist is the word, but authoritarian is definitely the word. So they're, ta they're talking about clamping down on journalists' freedoms, uh, tr treating them as spies if they re reveal information about the government. They're trying to clamp down on protests. There's like, there's a, there's a, an unbelievable laundry list of horrendously authoritarian moves that they've been making over the past few years. And I keep trying to point out that if these people are fascists, you should not trust them to implement like vaccine passports, digital IDs, or even take away any of your rights in, ter in terms of lockdowns. It's like, if you think they are fascists, do not give them, do not like ask for them to have more power in your life. Um, and anytime I have made that comment, 
on to replying to people that I know on social media or just like uh, even vaguely prominent left wingers and everything. Things where I, if I responded normally to things they'd said with a countervailing opinion, um, there would be like people would jump on me. Some would like try and like debunk my like point of view or whatever. Um, but when I make this point, there is nothing. There's just silence. And uh, it's that, 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 yeah, it, it's interesting to me with what, um, what gets pointed out and what doesn't. But anyway, James, um, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, it's been fantastic. Uh, would you like to point people towards um, some of your books, your Twitter handle and stuff, things where they can find your work? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the most recent book is Cynical Theories. Uh, so you can pick that up. But before that, very, very different work was How to Have Impossible Conversations. And you, so you can check that out if you're interested in talking to people you don't agree with, which is kind of a thing these days. Uh, maybe it'll start re, like re-emerging as something people are interested in doing. It seems to be waking back up. I'm seeing more popularity around that. The website is newdiscourses.com. I've actually got a couple of exciting things coming down the pike there. Um, I'm going to try publishing another a, a book somebody wrote and sent to me fairly soon about counter woke craft tactics, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and I am writing a, another book that I'm going to publish through new discourses so that I can get it out more quickly, hopefully by next month, along with the series of videos from the, I just mentioned a couple times with you that I was in Florida. Um, I did an event there in Tampa where I spent, I did a series of five lectures across two days where I just laid out kind of the definitive history uh, and, and like everything that you need to know about critical race theory, for example, in, in kind of one go. So that's also what the book is going to be about. And so putting that together, both of those things will be coming maybe next month. So you'll want to follow on newdiscourses.com to see that coming see what else I've got coming up. Lots of other cool videos I've shot in beautiful locations with actual human beings present um, that you'll want to, to join for as well. Follow me on social media at conceptual james on most of the platforms um follow new discourses at new discourses on social media on most of the platforms fantastic i will put links for all of the stuff you've mentioned there in the description below for anyone listening and um shout out for my next podcast that will be released i think after this one when it goes out will be with your co-author from how to have um, impossible conversations peter bogosian uh, i think is how you pronounce it bogosian okay there you go that's good i'll pronounce it correctly when i talk to him but yes that will be my next podcast after this so um people uh, subscribe I, I energy guy he's fun yeah I, i'm i'm very excited um so uh yeah uh thanks very much man it's it's been a pleasure yep for sure thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast don't forget our sponsor expressvpn and my book brexit the establishment civil war can both be found in the links in the description below and also please like share and subscribe to this podcast it's the best way to help us grow until next time, thanks for listening. Screw the hedge funds. You can make as many rules as you want, but if there's no teeth behind them, what's the point? Well, like Citadel is potentially just gone in a few months. It feels like financial institutions, that they are all laughing at us by buying GME. <laughs> Screw the hedge funds. Like, I will lose my entire investment if it brings them down. Why on earth, last May, could you buy the entire company for $200 million? What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace? 
has never been seen before. I argue that nothing is off the table. There is nothing off the table when dealing with the volumes of money in something as big as the United States uh, stock market. The hedge funds have clearly underestimated a group of a group of people raised on Friday night World of Warcraft raids. Dark pools, they are they're another uh, mechanism to manipulate and cheat. Mainstream journalists don't say these things for a number of reasons. Uh, one is their sources are the people that I'm talking about, and so they can't call somebody a crook. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy, and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice.